Jesus, thank you, uh, God, for your, your wonderful grace, Lord, that we can study, that you have given us such clarity in the word. Uh, Lord, your word has, has basically two messages. You have the law and you have grace. And Lord, I thank you so much for both of them and how they work in my heart. And when I get tired and when I get beat down and when I know that I've been failing your wonderful standards in the law, Lord, I know that I can come to you and receive your grace. That when I'm tired and thirsty, like we just sang in that song, there is freedom there. And I pray that you'd help me and help each one of us to live in that freedom, to just stay in that place where we're looking to you. Lord, that's the rest for the people of God, is that we can stay in that place where we trust you, where we know you are going to give us the grace that you have promised to give us. So Jesus, we call upon you to be faithful to your promise to speak to us in your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today's Bible study, today's message is called, Why Do We Go to Church? Why do we go to church? Why are we here? What are we doing? What does this matter? That we are on Iowa Street, on the corner of Iowa and Cherry in Denver in 2015, why did we come to church today? The world looks in these windows, and what do they see? The vast majority of these onlookers, you know, they they express disillusionment and maybe even disappointment, and they just don't get it. Our our postmodern world truly believes that anything supernatural is fake, anything invisible is science fiction, And science itself is the only belief system for the intelligent and enlightened mind. So they see us in here today and they they think that we're this backwoods people in mind and soul. And they feel that if they can't validate what we say is real because they can't fit it in a test tube. They can't fit it in a test tube. It can be measured or it can't be measured, excuse me, because God can't fit in a test tube. And it's scary to the world when they look in these windows. Because their, their God of science, it, it never changes, theoretically, unless it does. It's funny, when I went to school, the world was 5 million years old. And now it's 5 billion years old. I didn't think I was that old. Be careful with the word scientific theory because they're throwing the word scientific in front to hide the fact that it's a theory. That's totally wrong. Our God can't be contained or controlled. He must be served in fear and faith. And that's scary. And it's interesting how this modern skeptic, they don't believe in miracles. That's really where they get hung up on. Oh, science says there's no miracles. Well, yet that's exactly what they want to see in order to believe. If you say church is real, then show me a miracle. Right? Have you heard that? I totally have. Yet, science declares with every experiment that life is impossible. You can't create it. Yet it exists. So here we are. A miracle. Right in front of their eyes. Scientifically proven. It exists. It didn't exist. How did that happen? They don't know. It's a miracle. 
and they hide it behind millions of years. Right in front of their eyes, a miracle, life, right here. And so here we are, talking about God like we know him. Talking to God like we know him. Singing to him like, like he really is listening. Receiving impossible things that the world can't even figure out. Things like peace and joy and confidence and amazing grace. Things that are real. It's a, a chest of spiritual treasures opened for the people of God every week here at church. So, I want us to take a moment, a moment, a minute, moment. I said it together, so it's a moment. And turn to your neighbor and introduce yourself and, and share why you come to church. All right? Why did you come to church today? No wrong answers. The answer, even I don't know, is acceptable un until the end of service. Then it won't be acceptable anymore. So just talk for a moment and tell each other, why do you come to church? Don't let anyone be silent. Talk. This is when talking in church is acceptable. Why'd you come to church? All right. To meet? Like, all right. What about you, Maureen? Twenty more seconds. Why? Why'd you come to church? Why'd you come to church? What? <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I'll t I'll tell you what I heard as I was eavesdropping. That's right. I heard donuts. That was the best one. <laughs> there's donuts. There's, there's some people want to get to know God. Some people just want to worship God. Some people are just checking it out. Some people are like, I wanted to see a miracle. Some people said, I think, think I was cute. <laughs> I saw you, Dana. Just kidding. <laughs> My husband made me. Oh. Just kidding. All right, well... We get now to our text, and this is Genesis chapter 21, and we're going to start in verse 22. We're learning about, we're, we're going to be looking at Abraham, and we've been seeing him kind of living his life and, and learning to trust in the Lord. So look at what happens now. It came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me with my offspring or, or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me in the land which you have dwelt. Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abraham's servants have, Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and, and the two made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, and they, 
that they may be a wit, my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called the place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Fickle, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So first we see that Abraham and Abimelech become friends. And this Abimelech is a different Abimelech than the one we saw a couple chapters ago, actually in the last chapter. Abimelech is actually a name like Pharaoh. It's a, it's a name like governor. It's just a name uh, given to the, the king of the Philistines in that time was uh, their Abimelech. So an Abimelech could get elected and his name was then Abimelech. Or a guy, Bob, could get elected and then his name was now Abimelech. Um, so but we're seeing Abraham here, he begins to start to see himself as a part of this world. He's been wandering around in the, in the promised land for like 20 years now. And now he's starting to actually see himself as a part, not of the world, but in the world, as we see in the New Testament, right? We're supposed to be not of the world, but in the world, all right? So, and we see that what's happening in Abraham is he's really starting to experience and see grace in his life. And not only is he seeing the grace, but everyone in the world is seeing the grace because grace cannot be hidden. The work of grace in our life is, is obvious to so many people. It's how we change. As Abraham has been growing with closer to the Lord and, and the Lord's life maybe has been starting to flow through Abraham, we've been seeing that Abraham has started to grow in, this, in, in righteousness. He's starting to act like a different guy. And the world around him, they're watching him. They got their eyes coming in the windows. It's like, what is this Abraham guy doing? He's sojourning in our land. He's, he's hanging out here. So God's favor has been on Abraham, and it's become apparent to Abimelech because Abimelech says, God is with you in all you do. He spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all you do. This is another of God's promises being fulfilled in Abraham's life. That God would make his name great. That was one of the very first promises that God gave to Abraham. And here's another one getting fulfilled. And if God said it, God will do it. Three weeks in a row. You guys are doing awesome. Because God knows that trials are coming up for Abraham. And he knows that if Abraham is not fully convinced of God's faithfulness, there's going to be some huge failure and some devastating consequences. So this may seem like a small or even inconsequential story to us as we read it, but Abraham really needs to see that God is working in his life. He needed to have his eyes open to his promises being fulfilled. Just like Hagar last week, she needed her eyes to be open to the well of water that was right around the corner, right? She might have been sitting on the well, we don't know. But she didn't see it because her eyes weren't opened. But the Lord did the work of opening her eyes. And we, just like Abraham, we need that work done of God opening our eyes to his fulfilling promises. That he loves to fulfill promises. So he says here, God is with you in all you do. And that's exactly how grace works. It's exactly how grace works. When we submit our lives to the Lord, wherever you go, will be right. 
It'll be right where God wants you. Whatever you do will be blessed. Do I take this job or that job? How many of you have had that conundrum? What is God's will for me? This girl or that girl? This boy or that boy? What is, what, do I have kids or not have kids? You know, we have these major decisions. Beef or chicken? Or veg vegetables. Some people do that, and that's okay, I guess. And sometimes God gives you the choice. Sometimes God remains silent. And you might think, that's frustrating. God, why are you so silent? Why do I never seem to hear your voice? And God is answering and he's saying, I will be with you wherever you go. Pick which one you want. My child, which one do you like better? He really cares about our opinions. He really cares about us and our, the way he's made us. So let's say you have an option of being a trash man or being an accountant. And maybe you hate being indoors. And you hate math. And you would like to be a trash man. God says, go be a trash man. I will be with you wherever you go because that's how grace works. That's how grace works. Once you've surrendered, once you've surrendered to the Lord, he is with you wherever you go. After you have sought the Lord and become familiar with his heart, surrendered your will to his, and invited his spirit to control you, you may take steps of faith and confidence. You may. People are like, man, we've been dating for this long and we really want to get married, but we got to wait for the Lord to tell us that this is the time. And I ask, have you been seeking the Lord? Yes. Are you surrendered to the Lord? Are you living to honor him? And are you seeking him in his word? Yes, we are. I'm like, then do what you want. Be blessed. Receive the fact that God wants to bless you. Love God with all your heart and do whatever you want to do. That's been said before. August, St. Augustine said that way back when. And I think it might better, better be said, not that I'm trying to correct Augustine, but in my mind it works this way. Surrender to God's love for you with all your heart, and then do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. Because when you are surrendered to his love, when his love truly has affected your heart and has blessed you so much, you are going to respond in righteousness. You're going to respond to please him. Let me give you an illustration. This isn't even in my notes. This is totally free. When Jesus went to go visit Nicodemus, do you remember what happened? Jesus is passing by. Nicodemus was a wee little man, so he went up in the tree and he said, and Jesus looked up at him in the tree and he said, Nicodemus, I'm coming. And what was Nicodemus? He was a tax collector. He was a, a bad dude. But Jesus said, Nicodemus, I must come meet at your house tonight. I, bro, I'm so excited to meet with you just because, Nicodemus, I see that you're short. I see, but I see that you're heart and I love you. 
And what, so eating with someone was a big deal back then. That meant that you approved of them. That meant that you cared about them deeply. And so Jesus coming to meet with Nicodemus, Nicodemus was like, oh my gosh, Jesus loves me? Jesus cares for me? This is wild. And so he comes to eat at Nicodemus's house. And what does Nicodemus do? Before Jesus says anything, Nicodemus is like, uh, behold, I give half my goods to the poor, and if anyone, if I've defrauded anyone, I give four times back to them. And Jesus is like, bro, salvation has come to this house today. Now, the law would demand no such thing. Never would the law ever say, give half your goods to the poor. It never makes that command. It is far beyond what the law would ever say to do, including uh, giving back four times what you've defrauded someone. That, that also is not part of the law. This is the abundance, and this is what happens when grace changes someone's heart. When they realize how much Jesus loves them, you know what they do? Far beyond what the law would ever require them. They say, man, I will serve my brains out. I love people now. Why? Because Jesus gave me a list of rules to do. No, because Jesus just loves me. And he loves me so much. And he's done so much for me. Look, he's, he wants to dine with me. He wants to eat with me. When Jesus showed this love to Nicodemus, this grace, Nicodemus's heart was vastly changed. And Jesus knew that that's how it worked. He knew it. He knew how he could get more out of Nicodemus than by giving him a list of rules. He knew how much he could get by love, by grace. And he said, you know what? Away with the rules. Let me get you to fall in love with me, and let's see what happens after that. Then just do whatever you want. Nicodemus, of his own choices, said, this is what I want to do. Whoa. Whoa. That's how grace works, and that's how much different it is than the law. Because if I told you there was a standard of how much you needed to love God in order to please him or to receive guidance from him, I have just put you under a law, a vague and demanding law. Have you ever heard someone say, just love Jesus more? Love him more. That'll make God happy. Love him more. How much? How much more do I need to love him? What do I need to do? But if I tell you that God is willing to freely give you favor when you just believe and trust in his love for you, then you are free. You're free to receive. You're free to fall in love over time naturally, the way falling in love works. Nobody ever says, walks up to some random person on the street and says, love me and I'll marry you. So why would God? He wants to woo us. He wants to win. Oh, this is good. God is willing to win your heart, even though he deserves your heart. That's the law. The law says God deserves your heart. Grace says, but he's willing to win it. He's willing to love you first until you get there. It'll happen. 
But it's the way you get there is by receiving His grace first. He's willing to earn your trust, even though He demands your trust. He's willing to give you a new heart before yours changes. And that's his promise in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will give a new covenant, and, and in this new covenant, I'll get a new heart, and I'll just put it inside you, a heart that already knows me, a heart that already has a love for me. That's his response. But how does that happen? Grace. Understanding that he loves us first. But Abimelech and Abraham, Abimelech recognizes that this change has been happening in Abraham. Abraham's been falling in love with Jesus, so there's this this work happening in his life. And he says, Now therefore swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me in the land which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. This is referencing Abraham's reputation. His reputation had kind of gotten around that he was a liar. Uh, Remember Sarah? Remember, she's my sister. And that keeps happening over and over. Abraham keeps having this thing where he, he lies to people to try to gain an advantage. And, and going to church, like for us, coming to know Jesus, it doesn't change your reputation all by itself. That's not what it's for. It actually changes who we are. So that's embarrassing. You know, God is still blessing him despite of his constant failures. And Abimelech, he's kind of reminding him, hey, you're a hypocrite. And yeah, I see that God's with you, but I don't really understand it because you're an idiot. And I was more righteous than you last week when you lied about this, so why is God with you? This is kind of blowing my mind. But since God is with you, and since you're kind of an idiot, can you just tell, agree with me to not be an idiot towards me? And my kids. And Abraham's like, yes, I'll swear. I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. And I can identify with that because God is pouring out blessings on me, my family, and my ministry. And yet I'm continually reminded of how much I blow it. And every time I fail, I'm reminded that God's grace will never let me go. And that He will continue to forgive me and to use me. He will equip me and enable me. And he will change me and restore me. And I will never, ever deserve or earn any of it. I'll never deserve it. That's the boundless riches of God's grace. That he chose me and he doesn't regret it. He knew my failures and he still chose me. Wow. And he will contend with me. He will argue with me. He will fight with me my whole life until I learn and accept how faithful and loving and gracious he is. He'll contend with me. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well which of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I don't know what, who has done this to you. You didn't tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took uh, sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs to the flock by themselves. 
And then Abraham asked Abimelech, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, and they will be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called the place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Fickle, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. So Abraham, he, he agrees to be peaceful as long as there is no confusion on who dug this well. And they agree, and so Abraham gives Abimelech some nice gifts to bless him because Abraham has a plan for this well. Verse 33, Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba by this well, all right? And, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. A tamarisk tree. He plants a tamarisk tree. So I looked up what this word tamarisk tree means. And it's not just a, a, a kind of tree, actually. It's a grove. It's the Hebrew word that means a group of trees that would provide shade. All right? So it's a grove. I was going to text Ian and say, hey, you should change the name of your group to the tamarisk group. His group is called the Grove. It's funny. Anyway. And there he called upon the name of the Lord in this grove. So he plants this grove. He kind of lets it grow. And when he gets all shady, he starts calling on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, right in the middle of all the Philistines, all the, all the people, the Canaanites, all the people of the land. What is this that he's doing? This is church. This is church. Abraham wanted a public place to worship God. He wanted to reach out to the people of the land that were all around him with the greatest thing in the world, a relationship with the living God. He, di he didn't, he does not evangelize, he does not evangelize them by just telling them the things that they're doing wrong. He, that never works. No, he actually just demonstrates a relationship with the living God. And how does he do that? It says here that he did church by calling upon the name of the Lord. Well, you'll hear that, that phrase a lot in the Bible, the name of the Lord, calling upon the name of the Lord. And what does that mean? Well, it's not just his name. We actually don't even know God's name. We know four vowels or four consonants, but we've lost the vowels. So it's Y-H-V-H. And so they thought at, at one point it was Jehovah. But that's not really right because they just all they did was put the vowels for Adonai, which is the word for Lord, and they put them into the YHVH and thought that maybe that was Jehovah. They've, they've come more accurately to think that it's Yahweh, but we don't know. They think that that might be it, but we don't know. So he has this name that he picks for himself, but he also has a whole bunch of other names in the Bible. He's called many different things. And a name, what a name really is, it's a description of character, who that person really is. So when you call upon the name of the Lord, it's not about getting the pronunciation right. It's about calling on the right character. What is the character of the person you're calling? Are you calling upon the mean, vengeful God? Or are you calling upon a God of grace? A God who loves you. Are you approaching him as, as, a, as a Santa Claus? 
or are you approaching him as a loving father? There's two character. There's character that's behind this name. And so who is he? Who he actually is? It's, not, it's his character. And in Isaiah 9.6, we have a really neat verse that kind of gives us a, a nice, compact view of his character. So we're going to read that right now. Isaiah 9.6 says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. So this is about the Messiah. This is about Jesus when he would come, who we know is the perfect representation of God. He is God's image. He is God's messenger. He is God's representative to you. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know his character, look at Jesus. And here we are given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name... His character will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is a quick little five-fold description of God's character. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So I want to look at each of those real quick. And will we'll give us kind of a rounded idea of what Abraham was doing in this grove. What he, he was calling upon the name. He would have a conversation about God's character and with God according to this correct character. Number one, he's wonderful. At church, we talk about the wonder of the glory of God. We can be filled with wonder. And there's a part of church and worship that should just be uh, being shocked and amazed at how amazing God is. How loving he's been. Just to wonder at the mystery and the glory of the cross. And we do that sometimes just in worship. We just kind of sit back. Maybe you just sit down, everyone else is standing, and you just kind of go, wow, that God would meet with us. This is... It just blows my mind sometimes. And so sometimes I think Abraham was just in the garden, just, whoa, all this land is mine. You've been so good. You've given, look at my miracle child running around screaming. They didn't have children's ministry in his grove. Maybe it's like a separate grove way over there. I don't know. But wonder, that's a part of God's character. Is to, he's called wonderful. Wonderful. He should blow your mind. Secondly, he's a counselor. Well, how does this work at church? Well, he's the one who helps us with our problems at church, publicly. You have a problem? Where do you go? To church. That's where you go. You have an issue in your marriage? Go to church. Why? Because God says he will meet with you and he will counsel you through the sermons at church. It's not your pastor. It's God who wants to be the counselor. He's the one who wants to be the counselor. We confess our shortcomings and challenges to the Lord, and he gives us his word to teach us and guide us. As we prayed, we said, Lord, we don't got this figured out yet. We need you. And he says, all right, here's a sermon. Sean's an idiot, so let me just speak through him. And I'm speaking directly to you. Third, he's called the mighty God. These verses show that the Messiah was God. That Jesus, when he came, he was God. So in church, we can demonstrate and exemplify actual connection and relationship with the real God. How? By Jesus. 
who bridges the gap between God and man by his body and blood. Taking communion is a witness to the people around and the people who come that we have been redeemed and brought back to God, that we are connected. And he is a mighty God. And by his mighty works on the cross, which only a mighty God could do or would do, only the blood of God himself could pay the price for every man's sin. And so we go here and we look at communion and some people say it's just bread and grape juice. It's just stale crackers. What, why do you guys go and do that? But for the rea- what the really is, it's our connection with God himself. And it's real. It is real. And it's deep and it's invisible and spiritual but real nonetheless. And we walk up there and we take it like like we really have a real relationship with the real God. And some people come and they cry because it's deep and it's powerful and important. And the world looks at that and says, I don't get it. I don't get why communion is such a big deal. And we look at communion and say, that's my life. What Jesus did on the cross, his body being broken, his blood, it pours life into me that I did not have before. Right. Then he's the everlasting father. When we all get together as a family, it reminds us of our adoption. We seem to have an abundance of adoptions in here, in this room, in our family, and I love it because We have all been adopted into his family. And we have a little family reunion every Sunday. And we remember that this family is everlasting. This family is. It will never be separated by the pains of death. It will be together forever. So when we come to church, it's like a little mini family reunion all the time. With people that you're going to be with forever. So love them. Don't cut them off in the parking lot. They will remember in a million years. And say, remember when you cut me off. And the last was that he's the prince of peace. It's amazing to come into church with burdens and problems and you leave with peace. That passes understanding. Because God has reminded you of his promises here. This is where he does it. That's how he did it. Last week with Hagar, he reminded her of his promises. And that's how he does it with us. That's how he brings that peace into our life. It's never a boring Bible study when you're desperate for God to speak a promise into your life for you to hang on to for that week or you're going to die. And you all know what that feels like. Where if I don't hear from God now, my marriage won't make it this week. If I don't hear from God now, My kids are going to kill me. Or I'm going to kill them. Either way, there's going to be someone in jail. I need God's, I need a promise that I can hang on to. And here's the thing. God never fails to give you that promise to the one who's desperate for it. He has never failed once. Ever. No matter how dumb the pastor is no matter how boring he may speak 
no matter what. If you come to God in faith, say, Lord, speak something to me, God uses it. He will speak. He will be faithful. And peace follows believed promises. You have been reminded of promises today. You will be reminded every time you come to church on Sunday. And if you take it and you say, I believe it, peace will follow. I don't care if you're getting beheaded this week. There will be peace in your life. And I don't care what your husband is doing. And I don't care. Because God's peace passes understanding. I don't need to understand how he's giving you peace. I just know I remind you guys of promises. If you believe them, you have the peace. It is just given to you. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, there's a warning here as well. We've finished our, our text here. But I want you to notice that he names this place Beersheba. And this place where he called on the name of the Lord. He, he like planted this church. <laughs> that was good. I, I didn't even think of that before. <laughs> he planted a church. Because <laughs> he planted a grove. You got it, Jonathan? All right, good. And there's, there's a little warning in here. So I did a little word study on Beersheba, and I saw something really interesting. Abraham, you know, he, he gives this name Beersheba to the grove, the well, the whole little area is called that. And, and he was seeking the Lord, and God was near to him, and it was glorious. It was a great, great church, spirit-filled church, we'd call it. And then God continues to show up here and he meets many other people at this well and in this grove in Beersheba. He meets with, well, he met with Hagar last week right here. He shows up to Isaac, Theophany there. He shows up to Jacob and he shows up to Elijah. So this seems to be a really special place. Man, if you really want to hear from God, you go down to Beersheba, down on the southern end of Israel, because he, he constantly shows up to people down there. You know, this little grove, it's nice and shady. They got a well, they got some fresh water. It's a nice place to go to church. Comfortable chairs. They, they really have it figured out down there. They have this uh, formula. They have the location. Maybe there's something in the water that just makes it better when people of God show up. And so the people keep on going here. And over the years, they kept on looking back and remembering all the great things that God had done there. But as the kingdom went on, no one really noticed that they stopped calling on the name of the Lord. They, they may have had a name, but they weren't connecting with the actual God anymore. They, they weren't calling on the name of the Lord. They were forgetting who God actually was. They weren't seeking him. So then Amos comes along, the prophet Amos. We're going to read a couple of verses out of his, his little prophecy, his little book, the book of Amos. And Amos comes along. He's a prophet and he gives us a powerful message about what the church can become if we aren't careful. In Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, he says this, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord 
and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it and no one quench it in Bethel. See, God is very clear here that the purpose of a place of worship, a church, is to seek the Lord. And he names three churches, Bethel, Gilgal, and Bathsheba. And he's like, those were three places where he had done great things, where he had showed up to people. And he says, don't go there if you're not going to seek me. Don't think about just by going there, you're all right. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And when did he say that? When he took a whip and he flipped over people's tables and he whipped them. And when people say, what would Jesus do? They need to remember that turning over tables and whipping strangers is completely within the realm of possibilities. And God says here in Amos, he has no problem destroying a church with fire that has forgotten about him. He has no problem with it. He actually hates them. He hates churches, yes, that don't seek him. But I thought God was with every church and wants all churches to be successful. No. He wants pure churches that seek him with their heart. He could care less if some churches live or die. So sad. Well, look, Amos goes on. Look in chapter 8, verse 11. Amos, continuing with his message of purity, of seeking the Lord, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day, the fair virgins and the strong young men shall fail from thirst. And then verse 14, those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, Beersheba, that's this place, as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So what's happening here is that God is giving a weather report for how to know if you're in a church that has forgotten about him a church that is not seeking God, seeking him. There will be, he says, a famine of the word of God. No one will be feasting on the word, the Bible. They might look like they're seeking the Lord. They might run to and fro. They might sing really loud. They may have a preacher that yells and screams. But there is no real relationship because the word is not heard. It's so vital that in church, the word of God gets most of the time to speak. Not opinions. Nothing else. He says, as the way of Beersheba lives. That's what the people said. That's, that was their reason for continuing in this sin. Because there was a way, there was a formula, a way of Beersheba, people trusting in the way things were before. My grandpappy heard from God, so I'm going to do it the exact same way. Their trust was in a formula. 
Their movement had become a monument and their worship had become idolatry. And God now hated it. They had not connected with the head of the body. The church in the New Testament is described as an organism, not an organization. God does not want organization. I'm sorry, organized freaks. Any organization freaks in here? I know this kills you to hear, but God can organize stuff himself. And in the body, he does it very naturally. Things just plug into place when each part of the body connects to the head. Who is the head? Jesus. So if I'm following Jesus and I need someone to do something for me, or part of the church, the church needs something to be successful, I need to just follow Jesus and have a committee meeting. No. I need to follow Jesus, and someone else needs to follow Jesus, and the Lord will equip and knit us together as a body comes together, and it just will grow into doing the right thing. It's amazing how it works. And I didn't decide who was doing this, and I didn't decide who was doing that. The Lord put it all together. How? As each was connected from the head, and he distributed to each one as he willed and as he needed in his body for growth. That's how the church is designed to work. But for 1,500 years, the church grew in organization and wanted to get more organized and bigger. And for 1,500 years, it was centered in in Rome. And it wasn't the worst thing in the world. You know, for, for a while, those, those popes were seeking the Lord, and the whole church kind of had this structure, and popes and bishops and organization and doctrine kind of went out from there, and it was okay. But over time, men began to worship the organizational structure more than the head. And the church fell apart, as God wanted it to because he wanted people who would just connect to the head. And he was fine letting the church burn, because he had his people that were seeking him all over the place. And the church, the real church, the invisible church was fine. But the organizational structure, he let it burn. He was fine with that. And then denominations sprung up. And then you had denominations who were seeking God, seeking God, seeking God. Oh, here, let's call ourselves the first church of Beersheba. And they, oh, the best way to have organization in the church is to do it like this and have this form of government and do this. And Jesus is like, that's okay as long as you're seeking me. But the moment we trust in our organization, the connection with the head becomes less important to you. Oh, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll be okay because we're, we're structured, we're organized, and it'll protect us from falling away. No, it won't. Your heart will become evil, deceitful, and wicked if you lose connection with the head. What happens when a part of your body falls off? It shrivels and dies. I never, Thing was the only one that didn't do that. And he was a monstrosity. Doesn't work. When my hair falls out, it gets dry and wispy, just nothing, just gross. That's what the church has to be so careful of, is that we connect with the head of the body. We have one more scripture to look at. John 4, verse 19. We seem to reference this every week. Maybe I should just do a whole week on this scripture, but 
It's a, it's, it's a very important part of the Bible. Jesus meeting with this woman at the well, he says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You, will, you worship what you do not know. We worship uh, what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's not the location that matters. It's not the building. It's not the church denomination. It's not the strategy. It's not the style and it's not the kind of music. It's the spirit and truth that matter. God is actually seeking those who are seeking to worship him in spirit and truth. God is looking at all the churches every Sunday and say, who's really seeking me? And who likes their music? Who likes their building? And who really wants me? And I fear that sometimes we come to church for the wrong reasons. He says it must be in spirit. A deep, internal, real connection with the Father. This can only happen if you're filled with his own spirit. And he gives the spirit to the humble heart that asks for it. When we come to church, does that describe you? A humble heart asking for God's spirit. Or a prideful heart saying, I'm here at church, look at how good I look. I dressed up. I look better than you. And truth. Spirit and truth. This is the last point. The truth of grace. Not an imitation or the lie of legalism, which is faking a truly spiritual heart. We are completely unworthy, yet God provides all we need through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the truth that we must preach and hang on to at church. We must fight for it and trust in only that. And we must not become a church that trusts in a list of rules that is socially or socially acceptable behavior. We must only boast in Jesus. That must be our only thing. Our only reason for coming to church. What Jesus did for me. And I really believe it. So spirit and truth. That's it. Do you have the truth? Who is Jesus to you? Here's your little last application test question. Do you have the truth? Answer this question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a guy that lived 2,000 years ago? Or is he your only hope? Is he your only source of breath and life? Is he your savior? Is what he did on the cross the only reason why you have confidence that you're forgiven and going to heaven or you're not and you're going to hell? And then here's the second question. Do you have the spirit? What does the Spirit do? The Spirit calls out to him. The Spirit calls to him. Do you see that in your life? Are you calling out to the Lord saying, God, I need you. God, it's you. 
I don't need me. I don't need the spirit of Sean. I need a spirit of God to change me because I'm desperate. And I see my own unholiness. So I need a Holy Spirit to even give me what to ask for because I can't figure it out on my own. Yeah. So do you have the spirit? Do you have the truth? Why do we come to church? To seek him. In, in spirit and truth. That's the answer. So all of that for that little answer. Jesus, I thank you so much for the work that you've done on the cross. I thank you for church. I thank you that we can gather here and be a witness to this entire community. I don't know. I hope that there's someone in these houses right behind us that's listening and receiving the word and may come to believe in you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that in our lives that you would take us and control us by your spirit, that we would surrender to your love, that we would surrender, Lord God, to your truth, and we would call out to you by the spirit. Lord, we, we're going to take some time now. We're going to let this sink in. Lord God, we are gonna, we're going to bow before you and call upon the name of the living God. And we're going to pray and worship. And we're going to take communion, Jesus. And all of this is because of you and what you have promised to do in our lives. We're not doing any of these things to earn your love. We're not doing any of these things to love you more. We just want to simply respond to what you have done. We want our hearts to just open up to the possibility that you really love us this much. And Lord, I pray for healing for those who need healing. God, I pray for encouragement for those who are discouraged. And Jesus, we pray that you would be all that we need in this place. In your name we pray. Amen.